welcome to the Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important films and contemporary classics. My name is Chris and I'm joined by my guest co-host for this episode, Claire. Hello. Uh, Claire has uh, jumped <laughs> on graciously uh, since Lee is still uh, tech unavailable, we'll say, technically unavailable. Um, and we have brought her on as uh, our resident Kobayashi expert. Oh, yeah. So expert. So expert. Uh, her qualifications include having watched Harakiri twice. Two times. And that's it. <laughs> but before we get into that, Claire, how are you going? Oh, you know, I've been on holidays, so that's nice. That's nice? Yeah. Teacher life. Nice. Um, Have you seen, read, listened to anything good lately? Um, On the plane recently, I had downloaded and then watched Do Revenge. How was Do Revenge? I've heard good things. Look, I can't say it's like amazing, but it's also got some... Like for what it is, I've heard. It's also, yeah, really like there's lots of references to other films, literal and like just like in ideas. There's, yeah, there's... Twists and turns, no spoilers for people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, or you solid, who hasn't seen it. Solid, like, so should I watch it? Yeah, definitely. It was yeah. enjoyable and um, well, it's definitely enjoyable for a plane setting as well. Uh, it's yeah. a good plane movie. Just, yeah. Do it because there hasn't been a movie like that for a while. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah. That kind of, yeah, I know exactly what mm. you mean. And it's like nice when you stumble across, you're like, oh, I remember these types yeah, of movies. like a dark comedy, but for teens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What was one that I watched? I'm going to open up my letterbox. I watched one of those uh, recently that I was like, oh my God, like, oh, that's what it was. It was Fletch. We watched the oh, Confess yeah. Fletch. And we, it was, that was the one that I'm like, this just feels like a solid three star this is gonna be my new ranking thing it's a, if it's a solid three <laughs> <laughs> like a solid three star film uh that is totally enjoyable not amazing but really solid and it's the type of like a nice adult movie <laughs> we oh, don't get any soundtrack on do revenge that is the is it like four star is it like a specific like, um it it helps in the paying homage to all of its predecessors Okay, so are we talking like 80s, 90s, 2000s music? All of the above. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. And some more modern, but yeah, yeah. 80s, 90s. All right. 2000s I mean, teen movies. I'm intrigued then. Yeah. Now, um, I'll, I'll give it a watch maybe over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because, yeah, what, what did I watch on the plane? I, I watched... Um, for our listeners, I am actually a very uh, bad flyer. I don't like flying. Uh, Claire can attest to this. It's real bad. <laughs> um, and I thought uh, for the sake of the times, because we've just been away on holiday, for the times that uh, we were both arriving at both our destination and coming home, uh, for the sake of being able to drive, I I didn't take my usual Valium for my flight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna roll the dice on this, see how I go. And then because I'm so much more of a glutton for punishment, I'm <laughs> like, what movie should I watch on the way back to distract me? I know Castaway, a movie that opens with a horrible, horrible plane crash <laughs> that is sure to ease me. <laughs> um, it's. Strangely kind of did. Kind of did. It, it kept me occupied. Okay. Um, and I will say Castaway, a movie that I haven't seen in probably about 20 years. I remember I saw it once when it, at the movies when it first came out. 
and then probably once again. And so I hadn't seen it for a very, very long time. Uh, that movie fucking rules. Um, I, I was surprised how much I enjoyed it more as an adult. Like, as a kid, like, A, like, I think it's uh, one of Tom Hanks's best performances. I think what he does in that film is absolutely amazing. And when I was a kid and when I first watched that movie, when it came out, I was like, it's all the stuff on the island. That's, that's awesome. Then he gets rescued and there's half an hour more of film. Mm. And that shit is boring. Um, <laughs> but now being a 36-year-old married man, that is the best part of the film to me. It, it's I basically, can't even remember that part. It's basically he was on the island for like four years or something. Mm. And he gets rest. And the thing that's ta- like taking him through his entire like that time is the memory of Helen Hunt. And he's got the little stopwatch, like the little watch with her picture in it. And then he gets back and he gets rescued. And it's like, we thought you were dead. Like we had a funeral. And she's like, I, I waited for you, but I've moved on and I have a child now. And so it's like, it's yeah, fucking it's brutal. brutal and something that I didn't like. Connect to it, as it's, a kid. Because yeah. you, you assume the whole time that he's on the island, that's him dealing with loss. But it's actually once he gets back is the actual emotional growth and loss and the moving on with his life. Uh, and I think it works amazingly, except for the very last scene of the film, which takes place with Tom Hanks at a literal four-way intersection in the middle of nowhere, looking at a map. And you're like, God damn you, Robert Zemeckis. He's at a crossroads. Um, What's he going to... It's just like, ugh, you're obviousness. <laughs> like, I know you like to telegraph things to the audience, but Jesus. There it is. Yeah. Um, the reason I, another reason I was watching Castaway is I'm on a bit of a Robert Zemeckis, Zemeckis kick at the moment, having watched um, his new live action Pinocchio, which is uh, one of the most baffling and bad films I've seen in a very long time. You told me to just not. Yeah. And I haven't yet. It is truly terrible. Um, there's like, and you know how I love bad films. Yeah. Um, I've made you suffer and sit through a lot, a lot of bad films um, that are, I find enjoyable. There's no enjoyment in this. It's just bad, bad. Like cats, you can at least watch and have a good time at how bad it is. This is just bad. So I reckon I could maybe make a good time out of it. Mm, I don't know. I don't know. It, it's I don't, t- it's tough. It's really there's no redeeming features in it. Um, and so why I'm going on this Robert Zemeckis, Zemeckis oh, it's hard to say, Robert Zemeckis kick is because um, I'm trying to convince Lee for this month's uh, Patreon commentary uh, for us to sit down and talk about Forrest Gump because I... You have some feelings. I have a lot of feelings about that film that I want to talk out. <laughs> and so hopefully we're, we'll get around to that sometime uh, over the next couple it's of weeks. It's not like, the Criterion? No, it is not. There's only one Robert Zemeckis film in Criterion. What's that? I Want to Hold Your Hand, his first film, which is a very good film about a bunch of kids trying to get to see the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. Oh, okay. It's very good. <laughs> um... But yeah, so hopefully we'll be able to get that thing happening a little bit later in the month. Usually at the first of the month is when we drop our Patreon episodes, uh, but this one might be delayed by a week or two just based on some scheduling stuff. But yeah, patrons, will I'll, I'll keep you updated on that. But on to the matter at hand, which is the Rebel Samurai 60s Swordplay Classics box set. 
Oh, so it's a box set of sword fighting films. Yes. Um, well, yes and no. Sure. Um, and so what it's like we normally do with doubles or box sets, we're going to break it up. So this episode is going to be looking at the first two in the set, Samurai Rebellion and Sword of the Beast. And then the next episode will be Samurai Spy and Kill! It's got an exclamation mark. Oh. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. I have, you have to. It's like that. It's like the Darren Aronofsky film. Mother! You've mm. got to. <laughs> Sorry about your ears, everybody. Um, it's all right. I played with the levels. <laughs> um, but I will say in full transparency, uh, just in terms of scheduling, I've actually already watched Sword of the Beast and recorded that portion of the episode by myself already. And... Um, th- it would have really helped me because that one I just uh, recorded is like, we're going to flow into this and we're going to flow into that second part later in the episode. It would have really helped if I had done a proper intro and recorded that first, um, just to give myself context for what Rebel Samurai is. And I'm going to kind of break that down now uh, when I read the synopsis of the box set for you. Oh, okay. Rebellion. Another exclamation mark. Oh. Political and cultural tumult of the early 1960s shook Japan as it did the rest of the world. Japanese filmmakers responded to it, to the changing times by disguising themes of dissent in the traditional form of the swordplay film, or Chanbara. Previously populated by heroic samurai, self-sacrificing ronin, and historical figures who exemplified noble Japanese virtue, the genre began embracing new kinds of, of hero or anti-hero, the lone outcast, distrustful of authority, but maintaining a personal code of honor. These four classic films from, mas- from four masters of Japanese cinema turn a genre upside down, redefining for a modern generation the meaning of loyalty and honor as embodied by the iconic figure of the samurai. Mm. Now, spoiler alert for later in the episode, I hadn't read that <laughs> <laughs> uh, when I uh, re- did my portion on Sword of the Beast. And so I guess apologies for later in the episode. You're going to listen to me ramble and stumble and eventually come to that conclusion myself, having not known that that is the whole point of all hey, of these films. Hey, but you got there. Well I got done. there. I got there. So a uh, little bit of context there. So, yeah. Um, and having known that, I might have embraced and enjoyed sort of the beast more than I did. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, Were you a bit more confused? You're like, no, I was uh, like, I think, I mean, spoilers for in about half an hour's time. I, f- I don't like the first half of the film because I'm like, where's this going? Uh, yeah. But you knew where it was going when you'd read that. Word. Yeah, that would have given me an idea. Uh, yeah. But anyway, uh, you'll hear all about that later in the episode. But for now, let's dive into Masaki Kobayashi's 1967 uh, classic Samurai Rebellion. Toshiro Mifune stars as Ishibura Sashihara, an aging swordsman living a quiet life until his clan lord orders that his son marry the lord's mistress, who has recently displeased the ruler. Reluctantly, father and son take in the woman, and to the family's surprise, the young couple fall in love. But the lord soon reverses his decision and demands the mistress return. Against all expectations, Ishibura and his son refuse, risking the destruction of their entire family. Director Masaki Kobayashi's Samurai Rebellion is a gripping story of a peaceful man who finally decides to take a stand against injustice. 
All right. Uh, this is a good movie. <laughs> yeah, it was enjoyable. Yeah, so obviously, uh, as I said, you're our resident uh, Kobayashi expert uh, yes. because you've watched Harakiri twice. Yeah, so that's it makes me an expert. Yes, totally, totally. <laughs> Don't tell anyone else that's watched, like, you know, more than that. <laughs> more than one episode. <laughs> but that's why I thought it'd be nice to have you on for this one because you and I had watched Harakiri Let's, not podcast related. No, just just, just on a whim one yeah. night. Um, you actually picked it out and was like, "Let's watch this," and that was maybe a year ago at this point. I'm um, um, going early, early pandemic, maybe. Yeah. So Two, okay, so maybe a year three. or year and a half ago. Yeah. Um, and then you thoroughly enjoyed the film, and then we when we did our episode on it, uh, you know, a couple of months back. You were like, oh, I'll sit and watch a bit of the movie with you guys. I'll see how I go. I've already seen it. And you sat and watched the whole thing again. I know. And I sat on the floor, not even on a couch. Which, so I'm like, okay, this is clearly a filmmaker that has a style that's able to, you're able to connect with, I guess. Yeah. And so this is the next film he made, actually, two years later. Hmm. Yeah. And it is, it's very much, I think, tackling, obviously, as as we read in that synopsis of the box set, uh, tackling that kind of um, the rebellious themes, and it's something that apparently goes through all of his work. Um, this this notion of uh, a single man kind of turning against authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a quote from him, actually. Uh, what did he say? Uh, <laughs> I, when being interviewed by uh, critic Joan Mellon, um, he said, uh, his films are studies of the individual against society. And uh, all his pictures are all my pictures are concerned with resisting entrenched power. I suppose I've always challenged authority, mm. and this is yeah, like we like I said, a perfect example of that. I kind of like this idea of like it's not even just one individual in this one; it's really three individuals it's th- fighting against the entrenched beliefs that the society has that they have to do. And and what's more so I find interesting and super engaging with this one um, is that it's actually a a woman uh, as one of our lead characters and also uh, the person that has like supreme agency within the story and is actually the person that opens the eyes of the two men to the absolute mm. hypocrisy and injustice that occurs within the kind of uh, hierarchy of the governments and the laws of the land at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, like up until the point of Ichi coming into their lives, like I mean, there's that little bit of interplay at the beginning when Ishiburo is um, asked, like, "Hey, so your son's going to marry this outcast lady?" Um, and he's like, "No." He's like, "I, I respectfully decline." <laughs> and then it's like, "Yeah, but this is an order." He's like, "I respectfully decline," <laughs> uh, which is fucking hilarious. It's just him clearly doing the speech that his wife has written for him and he refuses to like go off book essentially. Um, and so that's, that's as far as he ever goes in terms of pushing against authority. Like, obviously he's like, nah, well, it's the lay of the land. We've got to do it. And then we have his, um, his good buddy, his, uh, fellow, um, Ronan as well in the tribe are amazingly played, um, by our Harakiri co-star, 
Why am I? Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Nakadai. Um, I'm trying desperately to find. I can't remember his name. His uh, Tatsuya Nakadai. Okay. Who was the lead of uh, Kobayashi's previous film Harakiri? Um, we've got him. Them having him basically summing it all up. It's how you live your life is how you do your sword play. You get pushed and you take a step back. You get pushed, you take another step back. Like it's that. It's it's your stance is always on the offensive and you're always in retreat mode, and Ooh. it's like that's kind of the thesis of the the film exact essentially until he gets his eyes open to the injustices that are happening and the hypocrisy just based and laid out by this. Yeah, fighting for his son, and his daughter-in-law. Yeah, no, only one of his sons. The other one is like, oh, Bunzo can he's... go. Bunzo can eat a dick. <laughs> Yeah, Bunzo <laughs> was a f- failure of the family. Like, for all they're like, oh, honor. You're like, oh, you're the one that ruins a family's honor by sending away your sister in law. But no, in his eyes, he's totally not. And it's because that's why it's so interesting and why I love this film so much. It, it it's, it's, it's because it is up into that point. Society like, that we don't really understand the rules of, I know. No, 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 not even that. <laughs> it's not even that. But it's Isaburo is technically the head of the household. Um, because he's the man, yeah. and he's the uh, elder statesman, he's the man, of, and so he's the head of that family. But in the, one of the opening scenes, again, when he's chatting with Tatsuya Nagadai, um, he says, like, he he's just like, yeah, in name only, like, my wife is, like, <laughs> he essentially is just like, my wife, take her, please, nee. Like He's doing Rodney Dangerfield jokes. He's really, like, and then we see that in action. His wife, Suga, is like... Oh, sh- gives, shut up, sit down, eat your fucking dinner. The <laughs> like, best evils. Yeah. He, and <laughs> so Isaburo, we see, is like, okay, he he is like, yeah, name only, I'm the head of this household. There's no fucking way. Yeah. She, is, she controls everything. She is the person in power here. And so Bunza, when all of this kind of, sh- the power dynamic shift of that, and when Isaburo and uh, Yogoro um, actually take a stand and be men of honour... As opposed, like real men of honor, not men of honor by following the law of the land. Uh, Suga and Bunzo are just like, what the fuck? <laughs> this spineless two are actually standing up for something. Uh oh. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So I guess you did. You like this movie? I did. There was there was a thought that came to my mind though. Yeah. I was like, do you think that soap operas were inspired by these things? Or that it's inspired by the fact that soap operas had already been invented in, at this point in the 60s. Just because until the fighting starts, I don't know, it just feels almost like surreal. Like, like a, It's like incredibly real moments with incredibly surreal moments and a lot of um, slow pans of faces. So it felt like well, <laughs> soap uh, opera. Can you elaborate on surreal? Like what, like what well, an example like it, of... It's surreal because it's like... You know, we have to we make you marry someone else because because you slap someone or oh well that yeah. I don't think that's not necessarily even surreal. That's just you know sixteen hundreds <laughs> like yeah. I mean it's it's yeah, off putting in, in the weird. time that it was made though. Oh well, it, it's based off a classic novel actually. Oh, okay. Um. So yeah, I should have it mentioned that. Still feels that. like a soap opera in my mind. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that all—the whole reason that Ichi gets kind of sent away and becomes an outcast is even further laying into that idea of, um, people kind of rebelling against the idea of authority because 
you know, you and I sitting down and watching this film under the 2022 prism, when they explain her story as to like, and we get to see her story mm. uh, as she's telling it. Like we hear the mother, uh, Suga, tell it at one point and you're like a very abridged version. And both you and I were like, yeah, kind of. she kind of mm. seems justified and mm. hitting, hitting the dude. Um, and then when we, th- we finally get to hear Ichi tell her story and we've presented it in backstory, you kind of expect it to be different from the gossipy end of the story that Suga has heard, like, you know, through the town and whatever. But it's fucking dead on accurate Mm. as to what happened. Um, But it's just the way in which people, like, interpret the story. Like, Suga hears the story that, you know, she unwillingly went and became the, you know, the wife of this, of the king, oh, the the king, the the lord, and um, gave birth to his son. And then she went off for a postnatal spa and she came back and found him cheating on her. And she apparently went crazy and disrespected by hitting the woman and Mm -hmm. then hitting the Lord. And Sugar is like, this bitch be crazy. Mm -hmm. Whereas we're, and then when you hear Ichi present the story, you're like, yeah, she's 100%. Like, I understand because she's a person that is in touch with her feelings and her emotion, unlike the Lord and unlike pretty much every other character in the film, apart from our three mains. No one seems to like it's just that blind following of law and order as opposed to listening to your heart or actually having an understanding of human emotions. And one it's that like once you learn to break free from that and embrace like humanity, <laughs> you you seem to like kind of unfold and kind of become a beautiful butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty silly. Yeah. Um, but it, it's so obviously similar to Harakiri, it's got, it, it kind of has those similar kind of beats, especially in the back half where it's, um, you know, where it, it's a character facing an injustice, mm-hmm. standing up against that injustice of kind of a hypocrisy of the law, and then a massive bloodbath ensues, <laughs> and it ends on a fairly downbeat note. Oh, yeah. So, like, did it bum you out <laughs> is, is kind of like, where I'm going. I, I didn't, like, cry, but I was just like, oh, really? Like, everyone had to die? Like, everyone had to die? Oh. But it, it, it's it's made even sadder because in um, – uh, I'm, I'm just looking at Tashiro Mifune. <laughs> Isaburu's kind of final things. He's like, no one's going to know the story of your mother and the father. Mm-hmm. But then – so it's like this brutal sadness, and then we see – the nursemaid picking up the baby and you're like, ah, oh, she's uh, going to tell the story. It's okay. It's that slight uplift. Uh, I yeah. feel she's going to tell that story. I wonder if she is. Because basically because of I like the way I interpreted it and her reaction basically yeah. when the bloodbath is about to happen, he's like, make the rice and then fuck off. Like this yeah. is going to be bad. She doesn't. No, because otherwise why would she have been there? She followed. Well, that, that's she it as well. Knowing that N- knowing the bloodbath and wrong. well, not just even before that, like even at the bloodbath at the house, mm-hmm. she knows yeah. she sticks around because similar to what ended up happening to Yogoro and Ishiburo, her eyes have been opened to the hypocrisy as well, and mm-hmm. she's now seeing what's right, what's yeah. right, and and is, she cares for the child. Yeah. yeah, it's got this like beautiful little symmetry, and then you hope that you know this this 
little kernel of hope that as uh, Tomi, the child, grows up, she'll kind of, you know, it'll be this imparting of, fuck these guys, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Tashiro Mifune. Um, he is probably one of my favorite actors of all time. Uh, he is, are you looking at me a bit blankly? He is Ishiburo, the main. Oh, of course. Yes, yeah. the main guy. <laughs> Um, it, it's, it was fun seeing him with the, with the top knot, the whole like shaved parts of the head. And then, uh, at the beginning of the film, I was like, Oh wait, that is Mufuni. <laughs> there yeah. he is. What else has he been in? Uh, he, okay. You know how like Robert De Niro and now Leonardo DiCaprio, like Scorsese's go-to, mm. uh, he was Akira Kurosawa's go-to. I think he acted in oh. nine or 11 films, something like that for Kurosawa. So I probably already seen him in things. Like 100%. Like he, he's the, he is the star of Yojimbo and Sanjuro. Um, they're kind of the big, the ones that were then remade as the Clint Eastwood Fistful of Dollars. Oh, yeah. I think um, I might have watched that then. He is the wild crazy. Did you ever watch Seven Samurai? He no. He's like the wild crazy one of that crew. Um, okay. Yeah. And was that before this? That was 1951. Okay, so yes. quite a while before. Yes, quite a while before. And I will say, uh, just because I always do, uh, back in the 40s, 50s and 60s, uh, Toshiro Mifune is quite a dish. Oh, yeah. Um, he is scrumdedly umptious, I think. <laughs> <laughs> he just exudes raw magnetism. He's one of those actors that is so... Just has that thing whenever they're on screen, you're just like, what the fuck? I'm oh. paying attention to that guy. Yeah, def- 100%. Like pure screen presence. And that's why it was so kind of cool watching him in this film where he spends the first kind of half of the film being very kind of subservient kind of um, both to the lawmakers, his wife, and then, you know, he secedes power to his, of the family to his son. He's like, I'm retiring. It's, it's your dig now. It's your gig now. And then in the back half, he becomes that badass Mifune that we know and love, the whole, like, the smirking kind of almost quipping. Yeah. <laughs> he has fucking action one-liners in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. He gets that sword out and he just, like properly wields it it's yeah. crazy but when they're like i love when the the chamberlain and stuff come and it's like the lord has uh ordered you guys to commit seppuku and he just smirks and goes seppuku <laughs> like he finds the notion hilarious yeah and he's like yeah i'll do it but yeah. you just gotta you know give me the heads of all of these other people that are <laughs> yeah. my enemies exactly it's fucking or he's goes from that sh- that character shift from kind mm. of quiet meek man to simmering bad and the others are like oh well i guess we'll have to what no and and that's why it's so (laughs) rad because uh, like even all of these people like the chamberlain stuff all the people in the village have known him always to be the guy who is pushed back he's pushed back and then he never kind of makes that initial strike and here he is finally just being like you pushed me too it's like fucking charles bronson and death wish they pushed him too far Mm. (laughs) and now he's and he's not a dick about it he's just Standing up for what is right, and it's like in the council there are there's I forget which guy it is. It's the guy from Harakiri, I think, saying <laughs> no, that the guy from Harakiri is uh, his friend swordsman who yeah, he battles at the end. His friend swordsman who he battles at the end, but he in the in the chamberlain's well, well, house yeah, or something they, they says w- says 
you don't want to go up against him. If you fight against him, even though you think he's been meek and mild, he is. You, it's going to be a bloodbath. Yeah, he's, he says it. you will have a mountain of dead bodies and injured men. Yeah, <laughs> he is an unmatched swordsman. This will not end the way you think it ends. And it's upon having like reached the end of the film, you're like, oh, it's because he said that, and that they know that is why at the very end he's taken down how he is. They know to go with guns. With guns. Yeah. It's, and, which, and, it's, and it's the thing of he knew that as well, which is why he said, <gasps> you have to lose to me. This is not going to end well. But because of his honour and his code as a samurai, he can't come tell out him and that. tell him that. Yeah. Oh, I never made that connection until now. Yeah. Of course, that's why he said that. He's like, no, no, I'll just take the girl. It's going to be okay. Just, you, just, let, just me, you have let to, me win. Yeah, you have you to have lose to, to me. Lose. Yeah. Oh. It, it's, it, it, but that's the interesting thing, and it's like this whole debate around honour and following the code and how kind of, po- pointing out how kind of backwards and broken that is. Um, it's so fascinating to watch a series of filmmakers point out kind of the p- hypocrisies of their country's past. It's really interesting. And it's mm-hmm. like, I cannot wait to see where these go. And like I said, I should have waited and <laughs> watched this one first before Sword <laughs> of the Beast. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. Um, but oh, it's so entertaining. It was very entertaining. Um, brilliant performances, not just by Mifuni, but... Uh, playing uh, his son as well, um, Go Kato, who is actually in Sword of the Beast coming up, who um, the, the one that I watched before. Oh, yeah. okay. He's uh, like the second or third lead of that one as well. Um, I thought he was great. Um, yeah. Because he similarly starts off as that subservient, I, I follow, do what I'm told. Like, he's the one who's just like, Dad, like, let me, I'll just marry her. Like, it's fine. Um, but then the love that he ends up expressing and showing for Ichi as they kind of go throughout their lives and have their child together. It's so believable. And the fact of like when the bloodbath breaks out at their house, he doesn't engage in the fighting. All he cares about is hugging his, his dead wife and allows himself to be fucking slaughtered Mm -hmm. really brutally. And, but before that, he seems like he's ready to fight, even though, we know from what we've seen and from what's been told to us that he has not any of the fighting skills no. that his father has. He's not been brought up in that way. Yeah. He doesn't have any training in that. He's just head of the household because his dad's retired. Not and he's kind of taken the station. And it's, it's, uh, Mifuni yeah. has a line early on when he's just like, you know, all we do is we go out and do sword practice. That's the opening scene of the film. Mm. It's like, we just do sword practice because we're in peacetime. It's pretty fucking boring. Yeah. <laughs> so um, his son isn't the kind of expert that he is, but he's still willing to throw his life away for the love of the woman he lo- he loves. It's it's really beautiful. Yeah. Um, and I will say, like, my favorite, like, we, we're talking about this, like, there's a lot of action, which there is, but the action doesn't really spring up until, like, the back hour. The first hour is very slow and methodical character-based examinations. and Like a soap opera. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you nailed it. <laughs> and the scene that I fucking loved, uh, I'd probably say is my favorite scene, is when um, 
uh, Yagoro is just like Ichi, just go back, just go back to the go back to the castle. It's fine. And then <laughs> fucking Ishiburo erupts, and it's just like you fucking idiots. You clearly love each other. I have lived twenty goddamn years in a loveless marriage. You're seeing you two actually love each other has opened my eyes and made my heart full. I will be damned if you throw this away. It's so beautiful, and it's that brilliant. Toshiro Mifune, if, if I were to name like three people in the history of the world, I would not want to yell at me. Toshiro Mifune is like number two on that list. Who are the other ones? Um, I don't know. Like I was going to say like Hitler or something, but I'm like, no, nah, that guy's a dick. I'd just um, be like, just you're a smug anyone. little dickhead. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Okay, fuck it. Mifune's number one. Okay. He's number one on that list. Maybe Al Pacino. Al Pacino screaming at you yeah. would be kind of weird. Um, <laughs> but he he has that powerful intensity, screaming and yelling at these kids. Like in, he looks like he wants to kill his son. But it's because you've made me understand love. He showed him what passion really is. Yeah, now we can have it. And how dare you throw that away over my dead body? Literally. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. I was also wondering, do you think that it? There's a little bit in the story of the fact that it is peacetime and therefore maybe when there isn't war for them to be fighting, that's when people will fight against each other instead. I like, mean, possibly. Maybe. Like the idea of just in, like, like in idle, idle, hand, idle, idle, idle time creates like, yeah. yeah. I Possibly, but I think it is just not necessarily in this case. This, this, is, this all comes about due to the lack of humanity, Yeah, I guess. The honour doesn't represent any yeah. needs for humanity at which, all. Which is the other great scene with um, Nakadai when he is called before the Chamberlain. Like in that scene you were mentioning before about how don't you don't want to cross him, yeah. he's, a, he's an expert. Um, they're like, okay, so he's going to do this. Uh, you just have to go and kill them. And he's just like, I'm a fucking border guard, man. Like, since when did I get... That's the job of an inspector. I didn't get a promotion, did I? Yeah. <laughs> and then the, the guys, the Chamberlain is just like, oh, why, why are we sticking to the rules all of a sudden? And he's just... and. He perp- like brilliantly points out, it's yeah. like, this whole thing is happening because you're sticking to the rules. Yeah. These stupid, stupid rules. And so I'm going to do that as well. Which is like this, I get why Nakadai is not shifting away and he can't throw away his honour for the sake of this other family and his friend. But at the same time, he's willing to acknowledge and help point out the hypocrisies. And he, he's like, I get it, but I can't do anything about it. Which makes it kind of all the more interesting and kind of engaging and powerful a story. I really liked this movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know. Is there anything else you... you... Oh, I was the... wondering if... Um, uh, oh, I've already forgotten his name. Ica, Ica, what's his name? I- Isaburo. Isaburo, thank you. I was going to say Ikaburo. No, Ica, Ikaburo Crane from <laughs> Sleepy Hollow? <laughs> <laughs> Is a is like the actor 
is he like trained in being a swordsman or something? Because like uh, Toshiro Mifune. Yeah. Yeah. He he was one of those back. It was like those actors back in the fifties. How like you know Errol Flynn and stuff. Where it's like I know how to dance. I know how to sing. I know how to f- sword fight. And I know how to ride a horse. So like, like a it's, quadruple threat. It's that thing of like well that's what you had to do to be an actor back then. And I think as well based on the fact that you know by this time Toshiro Mifune has been in like. Seven Samurai, Yojimbo, Sanjuro, uh, um, so even Hidden if he Fortress, wasn't like all these trained, he now is because he's done so much. Yeah, he he's acted in so many yeah. period pieces and samurai films where he's had to wield a sword that he is proficient. And plus, there is obviously choreography in behind all of this. I mean, Tom Cruise also knows how to use a samurai sword. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> we saw it in The Last Samurai, <laughs> a film that got, like I recently rewatched it, and that's a film that. I mean, a lot of people are just like, oh, my God, this is like, you know, uh, a white savior film. It is. Yeah. I don't think it is at all. It's basically a uh, imperialist who gets captured and saved by a Japanese clan who then learns to it's it's fucking dances with wolves is what it is. Oh, OK, <laughs> it's he, he ends up fighting with the Japanese, not and he doesn't teach them how to be better fighters. It's vice versa. They teach yeah. Them. So yeah. it's not white saviory. I mean, it's really fucking weird that it's Tom Cruise. <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, summing up on this one, I, as you can hear, I fucking loved this film. Um, I, again, wish I'd watched it before I watched Sword <laughs> of the Beast, but it, it's really engaging, super well made. Uh, Kobayashi is an extraordinary filmmaker, I think. Like, the way that he uh, is framing his shots, the, the, the visual dynamics of what he's doing, he's imparting the story kind of almost subconsciously to us. Like, the way that he's bringing... He's sitting the family around in scenes where they're having the debates and where he puts people in positions of power and how he uses dividing lines of the actual architecture as well to kind of help divide and break everything up. The actual, yeah, the the set of the house and that Mm. sort of thing just help tell that story. Helps with, like, the... Cool, like shadows in the background when yeah. things get really tense. Or, or, li- or like music. having lights completely fade out and mm. focus in on the spotlight. Also, the freeze frames when he, she's retelling the story about the slapping. Oh my god, that was like a cartoon. It was so, amazing. So great. <laughs> yeah. All these little visual flourishes. He he's such a wonderful visual storyteller. Um, I love his films, and I just want more. <laughs> yeah, for something that was set so long ago and was made. A long time ago as well. Yeah, yeah. It felt very modern in that way when it was like things like freeze frames. Yeah. Well, this film's nearly 60 years old at this point. It's 55 years old. Yeah. It's pretty great. (laughs) Um, And I would highly, highly recommend. Yeah. Go for it. Have Uh, a watch. Yeah. Uh, Do you want to hear a little bit of trivia about the film? Oh, go for it. Um... So here we go. Uh, most of the samurai in the film can be seen carrying two blades. Uh, this was a practice of Edo Japan known as Daisho. Um, not Daiso, Because no. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> you can buy everything for $2.80. Yeah. <laughs> uh, translated, this literally means big little. The bigger blade uh, was the katana, which was generally used in combat and dueling. The short sword was the can- uh, tanto, which was customarily associated with ritual suicide or seppuku. Oh, um, so wait, so you just carried your suicide one with you always? Yeah, just in case. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, I suppose the other thing that we didn't bring up as well, um, just give, 
because again, that was some real trivial trivia. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, the actual, uh, so the film is called Samurai Rebellion. Um, it was kind of, that was more the westernized name because obviously samurai films are very popular in the 60s and that was like, oh, well, that'll be able to bring in an audience. And it's kind of, it works. Yeah. It is a samurai who rebels. Um, but the actual rough, like the English translation of the actual Japanese title is Rebellion Receive the Wife. And Ooh. so they were kind of, uh, Toho, who were the production company, when they were going for in, uh, international release, were concerned about the idea of uh, putting the female aspects of the story forward, that that might deter audiences, which is kind of ironic given what the actual uh, story of the film is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, deterring audiences. How dare a woman try and say that she's not happy? Exactly. How with dare the situation? They? <laughs> how dare she? Yeah, how dare they have Let's agency? Let's take her out of the title. Yeah, <laughs> no agency for you. Uh, so the film uh, won the Sutherland Trophy at the 1967 uh, BFI Awards. I yeah, so British Film Institute Awards, mm -hmm. as well as it won the Fapresky Prize at the Venice Film Festival. Uh, the Fapresky Prize is the Critics Award. Oh, okay. At the 1967 Venice Film Festival. Shows how long Venice Film Festival has been going. <laughs> Wait, so 67 and 76. Oh, I, I, I misspoke. I'm, misspoke. My dyslexia came out there. Uh, the film is included on Roger Ebert's Great Movies list. Oh, yeah. And I just had a quick skim through his review. Uh, here's a nice pull quote. It is a film of grace, beauty, and fierce ethical debate. Oh, the yeah. story of, of a decision in favor of romance and against the samurai code. Um, way to go, Roger. He yeah. gave it four out of four. He, um, I still would have liked to have seen a bit more of the romance. Like that, It was just alluded to, and then the actions that they took showed that it exists must have existed but mm. yeah we didn't really see it no no they did a they did a castaway where they like fade four years later oh. <laughs> yeah here's a baby yeah um and it is now it's not in imdb's top 250 but it's in the letterboxd top 250 uh currently ranked number 238 oh yes uh, we will move on to the actual Criterion edition itself. Uh, so it's still in print from Criterion. Uh, the DVD comes with an excerpt from a 1993 interview with director Masaki Kobayashi, original theatrical trailer, an essay uh, by Japanese film historical historian Donald Ritchie, which is a really great read. Uh, Donald Ritchie's a wonderful writer and knows his shit. Um, yeah. Hmm. And it's also available to stream on the Criterion channel, uh, which is where we watched it. We sure did. Uh, my next question, Claire, is going to come out a bit out of left field for you. Yeah. But do you have a tagline for this one? Um, down with the Lord. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> that just came off the top of my head. <laughs> my, mine is love, honor, obey, but... Honor and obey are crossed out. Oh. Like, have like a samurai blade, like, strike through them. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. That's good. So, love, honor, and obey, but they're fucking slashed with yeah, samurai. That's, yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> um, but, yeah, Claire, thank you for jumping on and talking uh, some more Kobayashi with us. Woohoo. Uh, Kobayashi up next time. What's the next Kobayashi film? I'm going to look it up, actually. Oh, what? I've got the Criterion site in front of me. We, oh no, it's only letting me explore. Um, 
uh, Mifune films, but what is, what's Mas- Masaki Kobayashi got? Uh, well, we've done Kaiden, uh, which is an awesome fucking movie. Uh, we have done Harakiri. Ooh, he does another one in the box set, Samurai Spy. Ooh. Although, no, he's not credited as director on that. or is No, maybe he produced it or wrote it. <sighs> I can't tell yet. Uh, but yeah, we've got the big one yet to do for him is The Three Condition. Uh, sorry, The Human Condition. Uh, which is going to be super interesting when we get to that. Um, but, uh, again, thank you for jumping on. I really appreciate having someone to talk to again on these episodes. No worries. Uh, and so on. at this point, we are now going to do a wonderful transition to a uh, me by myself trying to figure out what's, <laughs> what Rebel Samurai films are all about. <laughs> When what's, we... what's the transition noise? Alrighty, we are on to the second film in the Rebel Samurai 60s Swordplay Classics DVD box set, uh, which is spine number 311, Sword of the Beast. From 1965. Legendary swordplay filmmaker Hideo Gosha's Sword of the Beast chronicles the fight of the low-level swordsman Genosuke, who kills one of his ministers as part of a reform plot. His former comrades then turn on him, and this betrayal so shakes his sense of honor that he decides to live in the wild like an animal. There he joins up with a motley group who are illegally mining the Shogun's gold, and with the aid of another swordsman, gets a chance not just at survival, but to recover his name and his honor. Alrighty. Uh, yeah, so this is the first Hideo Gosha film I have ever seen. Um, he's a filmmaker I know ha- that has quite a few... F- uh, he has a few other films in the collection. I think most notably is uh, Three Outlaw Samurai, uh, off the top of my head. But uh, yeah, I was not familiar with his work at all and went into this film knowing absolutely nothing about it um kind of the opposite of the last film where you know obviously knew quite a bit about uh Kobayashi and had seen a bunch of his other films so kind of knew what I was getting into uh but with this one totally blind and um did not know what to expect and it's a film that I think in its opening scene really helps to set the mood and the tone of what is kind of in store for the audience. Um, first and foremost of that is the music, which is fucking awesome in that opening scene. Um, I'm just trying to find... Uh, it's by Toshiaki Tsushima. I hope I'm pronouncing all of that correctly. But uh, yeah, it is fucking rad way to open this movie. It is such a bombastic interesting score that is kind of you know a bit of the horns in there as well as the drums and the flutes it's kind of a beautiful combination of what you would normally expect from a period uh samurai film kind of adding in with that little influence of that kind of western culture and that kind of um you know the bombasticness of the american and western films that was kind of slowly seeping into japanese cinema in particular these type of films around that time um it really really works well to kind of help established that this isn't really going to be a austere kind of period epic or a really deep in in kind of involved 
character study necessarily, but instead it's just going to be a really big, fun piece of popcorn cinema. Um, Like, this is kind of a prime example of, like, pulp filmmaking to me. Um, In that opening scene, you know, combining that with the music, you've got taking place all in the giant, um, I think it's sugar cane, I'm not entirely sure, but in the giant sort of uh, the fields and the cane there, um, you know, he... It's sort of where, also where we're introduced to kind of the nature of uh, Genosuke, who's obviously going to be our protagonist throughout the film. Um, opening with the scene where he's kind of getting similarly, semi-seduced, he kind of knows something's up um, by this woman, and then, you know, we're, we're like, what the fuck? It, it instantly piques the interest of the audience, being like, who is this guy, why is he on the run, and why is he such an excellent swordsman? Um, the way that uh, Gosha frames his action sequences is really what makes this film stand out to me. Um, having just the tops of their heads kind of poking out over the top of the cane and shot in a just a single wide shot as he's kind of running through and battling these guys. We're, we're not cutting... It's not that normal kind of cutting in close or focusing on the feet or the hands. It's just kind of letting it all play out in this beautiful tableau, kind of keeping us shrouded uh, from the actual action itself um, until he kind of bursts out and continues off on the run. It's kind of this great opening sequence where it's... We, the audience, it's kind of mirroring the fact that we have no fucking idea what's going on with this dude. So, that, like, you know, he's using the cane to kind of hide Gensuko from us as well as, you know, metaphors there, folks. He's keeping us kind of at arm's length from what's actually unfolding within the story. But then very quickly after that, after the defeat of these people, um, these fellow samurai, we get into these amazingly fun uh, freeze frame shots with a voiceover narration. It's the only time that the narration appears in the film that basically sets up the story for us. Gensuko is a samurai who turned on uh, the leader of his clan and he killed his counsellor and is now on the run and is being pursued by uh, the counsellor's daughter uh, along with uh, her her fiancé, who was formerly one of Gensuko's good friends, as well as a bunch of other samurai from the clan. So there is our initial setup. Um, And this is where the film kind of takes a a very slow turn for me um it, it, it's that such a after, especially after coming from especially after coming after such a bold introduction scene that immediately grabs you as the audience the film meanders for about the next half an hour which is a lot of time in a film that is only 85 minutes long um, it, 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 for the next little while, we, we just following Gensuko as he's on the run and being pursued. And I'm sitting there watching the film this entire time, just kind of contemplate, like wondering, is this all that we're going to get? Is, is there going to be anything else happening in this? Or is this simply just going to be a pursuit film? Um, because... Like, when I watch a film like that, especially like how this one is being presented, if we're not, it's not exactly satisfying for me as an audience member. I'm not actually really getting involved with the the narrative stakes, I suppose. It doesn't allow me much opportunity to engage with both our protagonist and his pursuers. It's just a kind of on the run. You need to have, I guess, more kind of downtime or, or an understanding of the stakes, I guess. And this film doesn't really get to any of that until it's 
back half where it really does shift into a completely different narrative once the the gold element of it all comes into play. Um, I do really want to point out that the original title of this film, um, or like the the actual translation of the Japanese title, uh, isn't Sword of the Beast, but it's Samurai Gold Seekers, which I think is a fucking awesome title and kind of wish that this film had kind of kept with that because if it did I kind of would have known where it was going like that there was going to be something more kind of coming down the pike with this one whereas with Sword of the Beast kind of again this is this is all on me I, I went into this knowing nothing but it's I'm kind of expecting it to be kind of like a Sword of Doom movie I guess you know just were one word off on the title difference there, but it, as it is just a kind of a wayward Ronan kind of wandering, um, I guess, but, but with that film, we know that he's a re- like, it's that redemptive quality is kind of already there. It's whereas with this, it's, it's, we're, we're kind of flying blind. Um, Goshi kind of tries his best to like at points in the film, give us some little sprinklings of backstory where, you know, there's a lot, quite a few uh, flashbacks that end up happening, kind of filling in the blanks as to why the murder happened, why Yensuko is on the run, like, you know, all of these, like, to allow the audience to finally connect with this character. But it, it's almost that thing of it, when the film was at about, you know, 45, 50 minutes in, which is like over half its running time at this point, I made the note, I wrote down in my notes, like, is this just a film where everyone's an asshole? Um, it was around about the time where uh, it's uh, Gensuko kind of walks in on, I think it's Osen, uh, the, the woman after she's killed one of the guards. Like, yeah, if you've seen the film, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, it's, it's just a prime example, that scene of these two characters who are solely looking out for their own interests after having done kind of unspeakable acts. Um, and... I'm sitting there being like, so this is what we're going to get for the rest of this film is essentially just shitty people. Um, and I have no problem with watching a film about shitty people. Like, you know, see any of the Safdie Brothers movies for that, for an example of that. They're endlessly entertaining, um, you know, but but at the same time, if, if there's nothing there behind uh, for me as the audience to root for the character, uh, it's going to be tough. All that being said, it, this is a film that shortly after this, once it hits into that kind of back 45 minutes, it really does do that shift. And it kind of shift, it, it changes its narrative mode to actually completely, we move away from, like, we almost forget that Gensuko is on the run and he's got pursuers after him once the gold plot comes into play. Um, and it, it's one that slowly we start to see the redeeming qualities of this guy. Like, because up until this point, he's just been a man who we've seen murder somebody and is on the run. And as they constantly refer to him, is he's slowly becoming a beast. He's becoming a wild animal, hence sort of the beast. Um, but it's only now that we start to actually get a little bit of inklings of compassion or understanding as to why as to, there's something deeper going on with this dude. Um, the kind of focus he takes, like looking after, wanting to kind of care for uh, Taka and Jiroto, uh, the other samurai and his wife that he finds up in the mountains, as well as kind of honestly, um, I think it's Tanji, uh, the the other kind of guy who convinces him to come along as, as his bodyguard um, for the the mining plot. It's really, 
It's at this point where Gensuko starts to actually, he notices immediately what's going on with these two samurai and these little glimpses of honor start to come out. Um, obviously the saving of um, the wife from being attacked and raped by the, the three marauders that they've kind of gone up into the mountain as well, uh, that he'd had a previous encounter with. Um, the emotionality um, kind of comes through and like I, I'm speaking just for myself here, obviously, but it wasn't until this point where we're slowly Gosha is revealing to us the compassion of Gensuko and the circumstances that, that he finds himself in. And it's only around this point that I slowly started to have a connection with the character himself and actually start to really engage with him or kind of, for lack of a better term, give a shit. Um, it, it, it took me that long, which isn't necessarily something you'd want from a film that, like I said, is only, you know, a smidge over 80 minutes long. Like, if, if half of the running time, I just didn't give a shit, it, it's probably not that engaging. But all of that, as I said, all that being said, it is for that second half, when the proper narrative kicks in and the we, we have something to latch onto with Gensuko, it really does become an inst- interesting story. Again, this film should have just been called Samurai Gold Seekers, and we, they really could have trimmed out some of that stuff from the first half. Um, I get why they didn't, um, because Hideo Gosha is supremely known for being a one of the kind of stalwarts of the 60s and 70s kind of samurai movement um and by that i mean the way that he presented action um was really revolutionary at the time like i said bringing that kind of western culture into it all um and so obviously he's wanting to revel in that and kind of really present as much of that to the audience as he can but unfortunately for a modern day audience it was just kind of we're watching the same thing over and over again, and it just felt like it was dragging and lacking anything for the for me to kind of connect with and to really latch onto and follow through as a narrative device. Um, but again, I will say the gold story is super interesting. I mean, the first thing that popped into my head when it was all the gold panning stuff. Um, I don't know has anyone seen the Jacques Audiard film, The Sisters Brothers? Um, it, it was the kind of film that really went under the radar. Uh, weird considering it had Joaquin Phoenix, John C. Riley, Riz Ahmed, Jake Gyllenhaal. It's a great, fun movie, that one. Uh, it's very fucking weird. Um, so it's what I kind of guess what, get why it went under the radar. But I guess I'm just a sucker for any period piece where it's about weirdos and outlaws trying their hand at gold <laughs> i guess at poaching gold um and that's what found, i found really interesting the once kensuko stumbles across um god what are their names again ataka and jiroto um th- that's when i'm like okay there's a simpatico here it's these two guys that are clearly separated from their clans fighting themselves in not necessarily similar states because jensuko is the samurai who's kind of, he's been already betrayed and um, Jirota is the one who's about to be. So it's, he, he notices this, that kind of simpatico in, but like that between the two of them. And you're like, I just, I'm now invested. I want to know how the relationship between these uh, four people, if we include, you know, uh, Jinsuka's little buddy there as well, how this interplay is going to go down. Is there going to be a team up for getting the gold? Is there going to be the betrayal? Because that's the thing. They keep kind of continually 
helping each other out while continually idly threatening, I'm going to kill you and uh, or I'm going to steal your gold. And it's one where you're just like, oh my God, we're going to get this unlikely partnership. They're going to learn to become friends and it's going to be great. And everyone's going to be rich together. Um, that's not necessarily what happens. Uh, spoilers, I guess, if you haven't seen the film yet. But where it goes into this kind of really hectic last 20 minutes where it's basically uh, the pursuers um, against against Suko's uh, former friend and um, uh, the the daughter of the counselor that he killed they they are arriving uh, as like all those people that are coming to kill him arrive on the mountain at the same time as Jirota's clan and so it's about like you know this kind of instead of having the two kind of uh, two protagonists i guess are two different factions on the mountain uh teaming up for the good of each other instead we have both of their kind of backstories colliding uh together into the mountain into this kind of calamitous action where it's everyone is trying to kill everyone and it's really exciting and it's really fun um uh Jiroto and taka find out that basically their um their master and their clan uh totally going to betray them and kill them uh, which they end up doing but this is actually done at the same time in front of um Gensuko's uh old friend and the and the fiance uh, the fiance and the daughter who immediately see the parallels uh, between the two stories, because at this time we've kind of figured out and been told that Gensuko, yes, while he did murder the counselor, he was kind of duped into doing it and then betrayed by the clan. So by presenting, by by the people who are pursue, pursuing him, getting an opportunity to see something exactly like what has happened to Gensuko in action and kind of have an acknowledgement of the hypocrisy that goes into kind of the blindly following the rule of the clan. Um, it allows them kind of some clarity into the whole situation. And yes, while Gensuka did kill her father, they're able to kind of forgive and forget based on like having their, their minds blown, I guess, essentially from the whole idea of the hypocrisy that exists within the current kind of uh governmental systems that they all find themselves in and having experienced all this they're like not we can't go back either our eyes are open the world's a shitty place anyway have fun off we go (laughs) and then he just walks off into the sunset uh and it kind of it's very kind of almost westerny that kind of classic you know the the hero having you know either saved the day or kind of brought to light you know the corruption or the hypocrisy kind of just like tips his cap and then wanders off into the sunset it's really one of those kind of like i keep saying the western infused ending there um but yeah it's i i did find something kind of interesting uh i i had a read of the essay that was included in the criterion edition um the who's it by let me just find that give credit where credit is due, uh, by Patrick Macius. Um, interesting essay. Uh, it's not at all about Sword of the Beast, but instead it's kind of about the genre and the evolution of uh, the quote-unquote rebel samurai and that whole genre and how it kind of developed and ex- expanded and shifted and changed uh, from the 50s through to the 70s. So it's an interesting read, but there is one point where he does kind of focus in on um, Hideo Gosha's filmmaking, and in particular, Sword of the Beast. 
Um, and I'm just going to read that quickly because I found it kind of interesting where... Um, uh, here we go. Uh, Though Gosha exhibited no explicit political bent and was vocally opposed to including messages, uh, in air quotes, uh, in his films, uh, all of his productions uh, are savagely critical of established authority and bourgeois hypocrisy. Much like the work of Americans Anthony Mann and Sam Peckinpah, again, Western influence coming in, Gosha's films reflect a rugged individualism bound up with personal honor and integrity and a ferocious self-reliance in the face of overwhelming adversity. So that's, that's basically it. it it's, it's, it's summing up kind of what I'm rambling and trying to say, I guess, is once the film kind of kicks in and that kind of notion of the individual honor against the honor of the overall clan and the the kind of overwhelming hypocrisy that can come from within a established system that is unwilling to grow or change is makes this for a very interesting watch. Um, my only criticism is that it takes... 45 minutes, 50 minutes of an 80-minute film for us to get there. Um, while that, that first 45 minutes wasn't necessarily hard to watch, it, it was, you know, it's fairly easy. Like I said at the very beginning, it's like an epitome of pulp cinema. It's great music, fun cinematography, amazing-looking swordplay in action. It's fun to watch, but there was just nothing meat. There was no meat on that bone. There was nothing for me to kind of engage with. Um, but once we get into that gold plot and the, the kind of the mirroring image of our, of our now new characters that we're introduced to and then the eventual uh, kind of unfolding of the hypocrisy, that's, that becomes super interesting to me and I really got behind the film. Um, I'm going to just, like I said at the beginning, the music was absolutely fantastic. I, I think it's actually one of the standout things of the film. Um, really, really dug all of that. And again, the cinematography, I thought, was uh, really great as well. This, like I said, uh, I'm not that, I'm not familiar at all with Hideo Gosha's film, so I'm not sure if that's a kind of style he, he has in the rest of his films. Uh, this was also only his second film that he ever made, which is pretty impressive as well. Um, but again, the, the way that he's able to shoot his action, uh, kind of keeping the camera removed uh, and kind of con- there's a lot of um, there's a lot of dolly shots and the occasional amazing like crash zoom in uh, of intensity on people's faces when you know there's either a horrible rape scene happening uh, which unfortunately there's like there was a surprising amount of that in this film which I was not expecting um, but yeah like when there's harsh or dramatic action he he's not shying away from really kind of leaning into that like schlock element of crash zooming into people's faces or into the action beautiful dolly shots obviously the film takes place predominantly in a mountain setting in that back half so there's beautiful landscape cinematography as well that really helps you as the audience to kind of connect with it um performances fine they were totally fine <laughs> um Mikijiro Hira as Gensuko Gokata as Jirudo, uh Shima Ishiwata as Taka they were all totally fine um completely servicing the exact role like the exact needs of the character presenting someone that's interesting I mean uh Hira is in particular as Gensuko um the way that he's able to like the whole first half of the film he's essentially presenting his character as a beast. He keeps saying, I'll eventually become a wolf. And he's kind of really 
exhibiting those traits uh, in his physicality and the gruffness of his performance. And then in that back half, once the backstories become clear and, you know, the everything starts to unfold he does allow for a little bit of humanity to kind of slowly seep in through that and the compassion and we can start to see this is not necessarily a man who is letting himself freely become a beast but it's a man that is kind of under the surface fighting that urge he doesn't want to transform into the beast he doesn't want to be in the situation he's in but it's the one he finds himself in and he's trying to kind of hold on to that humanity while he still has it as it's quickly kind of slipping away while he's constantly on the run and being pursued having to kill over and over again um Really, it's a solid performance, but to me, there is one performance in particular that was a standout, and that was Yoko Mihara as Osen, uh, the woman at the uh, at the inn who um, kills one of the guards, tries to then kill Gensuko, and then uh, double crosses the clan by uh, kind of filling in Gensuko in on what's going to happen. Um, she is so over the top and awesome. Um, she reminded me almost of a character out of a Russ Meyer film for some reason. Um, and I don't mean that based purely off of her build or anything like that. I'm not, yeah, that's not what I'm meaning. Um, but it's just that kind of attitude and that swagger that she kind of had behind her character. I thought she was fucking awesome. And I kind of wish that there was a little bit more of her in the film. I, I loved her. Um, what else is there? I mean, I guess it's it's that thing, like like uh, like Macius was saying in the essay, and like I've been touching on that how Gauche's film ends up having that kind of through line about pointing out the hypocrisy of kind of uh, the status quo or going along following the rules and authority. It it's definitely there, and I think it works, and it comes through very very clearly for the audience it's just like i keep saying it, it's it really only comes to light in that back half hour or so and but what and when that happens the film becomes totally engaging and it's one where i think if i understand why he has presented the film in a non-linear fashion by giving us the backstory later on why Ginsuko's on the run we get to see that in flashback and stories he's telling but it would be interesting that if the film is kind of front-loaded with that. If if we knew were presented with those scenes early on, if it helped us to kind of latch onto this notion of where of kind of the corruption within these organized systems, and it would help us also kind of get that message across as well as kind of have some empathy or understanding for Gensuko as Gensuke as a character. Um, I, I'd be very interested to see how that plays out. But I mean, it it does work. Uh, it works for me, but it's just, I think it could have maybe been handled a little bit better in the narrative structure of how uh, Gosha is presenting it to us. Uh, final thoughts on this one? It's, it is a solid three. <laughs> um, it is a solid three out of five. Uh, nothing wrong with it. I mean, you know, there are some issues with it there that I've said, obviously, but at the same time, it is totally engaging, totally enjoyable. That last 40 minutes is really fantastic and definitely makes up for that kind of very, not lackluster, but kind of just hollow first half, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, it's definitely worth a look, but I wouldn't go in necessarily expecting anything amazing or groundbreaking necessarily. Um, so on that note, uh, tagline.
Have I got a tagline for this one? Yes, I do. Kill the bad guy, save the girl, get the gold. A samurai's work is never done. Uh, that's my attempt, at least. Going for a kind of, like I said, it's infused with that peck and paw westerny feel, so I'm just going for it. Um, <laughs> but uh, the actual Criterion Edition itself will dive into that one. Uh, it's only available in the Rebel Samurai 60 Swordplay Classic box set, uh, which. Oh, it is still in print. I, I didn't know if it was um, out of print or not. It's apparently still in print, and it comes uh, with the essay that I talked about by uh, Patrick Macius, and that is it. Nothing else. No trailer, no stills, no nothing on this one. Uh, but you, it is actually available to stream on the Criterion channel as well. But that'll wrap us up for our first a double episode, uh, looking at the first two films in the Rebel Samurai uh, 60 Swordplay Classics box set. Uh, thank you very much, Claire, for jumping in on that first half, uh, discussing uh, Samurai Rebellion with me. Uh, really appreciate it. I love actually having someone to talk to about these movies. Uh, so I'm going to try and get somebody else to kind of jump in on either one of the next two, which are going to be uh, Samurai Spy from 1965 or Kill from 1968. Um, so yeah, we're going to be doing those two again as a double uh, in a fortnight's time. And then after that, is Robert Brisson's Pickpocket, shortly followed by Akira Kurosawa's Ran, uh, Powell and Pressburger's Tale of Hoffman, which leaves us at an interesting position. Uh, Lee's still going to be off episodes for quite a while to come, and these are some of the films that I think she would either really engage with or I think would be really uh, great to discuss with her, in particular, like, with Pickpocket, um... The kind of, based on having watched Ohazard Balthazar together, the kind of furthering that discussion on Brisson, uh, same, similar with Ran um, about Kurosawa, and Tales of Hoffman, mainly because The Red Shoes is Lee's favorite film of all time. So I want to kind of sit down and talk about those ones with her. So what I'm thinking we might do is actually put some of those episodes on hold. And I'm going to, we're kind of going to, going to kind of leapfrog over a couple of titles coming up uh, just so we'd be able to have Leon for those episodes. And then once she's back and ready to be recording again, we're going to kind of circle back around and hit some of those key titles that we've uh, kind of breezed past. Um, hopefully that's cool with everybody. I, I'm sure it'll be fine. Uh, if not, let me know. I'll, if you think it's a good idea, let's figure it out. Um Hopefully that's cool. Um, hopefully you guys will in get, like enjoy that, and you know, hopefully we'll be able to get her back on the podcast again soon, uh, as soon as she's able to. Um, I might try before the next episode to get like a little bit of a snippet from her, maybe just a little kind of update and how she's going and everything. Um, but other than that. Uh, as usual, plug in the Patreon, patreon.com slash the Criterion Quest. Uh, any support towards the show is greatly appreciated. Uh, we really love and appreciate all the people over there on the Patreon. Uh, as usual, you can send us an email at thecriterionquest at gmail.com. Uh, otherwise, yeah, I'll be back in a fortnight's time looking at Samurai Spy and Kill. Uh, but for this week's episode, I'm Chris. And we had Claire earlier on. We'll see you next time.